Hello, this is the Asian Education Podcast produced by the UNESCO Chair of Kyushu University in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. I'm Edward Vickers and this time I'm in Chandigarh in India to interview Professor Krishna Kumar. And Professor Kumar spent most of his career at the Central Institute of Education of Delhi University. He's the author of a number of very important books and uh, articles on the history and politics and other aspects of education in India and more generally, in particular, the politics of education in colonial India, which is a seminal study of the, the, the history of education in British India and Prejudice and Pride, which is a, a fascinating comparative study of the, the way in which the history of the freedom struggle, India's struggle for independence, is narrated in the history curricula of India and Pakistan. Now, Professor Kumar from 2005 served as the head of the National Council uh, for Educational Research and Training, NCERT, which is a very important body under the authority of the, the central government in India, has a responsibility for teacher training and for devising curricula and textbooks for use in centrally controlled schools and institutions right across India. Now, today we're going to talk mainly about the issue of curriculum reform and about Professor Kumar's own experience in that area. So to start with, if you can just um, uh, tell us what you see as the main challenges or issues for curriculum reform in a very complex, diverse society like India. Thank you. Uh, one of the issues you've actually already touched upon in your introduction, uh, when you mentioned that the NCRT, the National Council, is um, an organ of the central government, its Ministry of Education, uh, <clears throat> to prepare uh, curriculum and conduct research that might um, help um, institutions that are um, centrally governed across the country. When you say that, uh, one is reminded immediately of the fact that the Indian system is quite um, complex, divided as it is between a very vast domain where the states uh, have uh, predominantly been given the responsibility for um, maintaining and reforming school education. And on the other hand, uh, a considerable presence of the center, that is the federal government, uh, through the central board of secondary education over the last uh, six or decades or a little more, uh, the center has uh, maintained a considerable network of secondary schools, uh, more than 16,000 now uh, in the country. And originally, of course, NCRT was seen in the context of these schools. But with increasing interaction between states, there are 29 states in India, and the center, uh, since the mid-70s, uh, increasing interaction has meant uh, that curricular reforms initiated by the NCRT tend to spread, tend to act as models a uh, kind of a model for states to um, uh, follow on and so on. So the challenge has been all along uh, how to adjust a kind of a national um, perspective on the direction of curricular reform with sufficient space uh, for states to show their acumen uh, for bringing about changes that will affect the uh, ground level functioning of schools. Because India's diversity is not just uh, in the center versus states kind of access. There's enormous diversity within uh, each state uh, and differences, you can call them inequality, disparities between rural and urban 
and within and within states there are regions where different uh, oral versions or dialects uh, of the same language might be spoken or maybe more than one language and so the issues that we are indicating um, in this conversation are actually extremely complex uh, because they intersect with cultural linguistic uh, identity issues and education being such a major uh, state investment um, in modern societies it has to respond to all of these uh, aspects of diversity in order to be relevant in order to make a difference to people's lives and also in order to bring about some degree of uh, social change on the uh, most difficult axis of equality in a society which has this these aspects of diversity plus disparities that are rooted in the caste system which is a very you can say almost a very unique feature of social organization uh, in india not not merely in the sense of uh, uh, determining uh, how society runs, but determining people's opportunities, chances. Um, and so education, it, you know, interacts with so many complex cultural factors uh, that it's not an easy domain for any government, no matter how powerful it is, uh, to, to manage. Yes, so I mean, uh, as you pointed out, um, in India, education and curriculum development is primarily a responsibility of the separate states. Yes. Uh, and some of those states are larger than most countries. Yes, uh, yes. And, and um, just as diverse. Uh, and so for the National Council, for NCERT, uh, where you were head uh, for a number of years, um, uh, NCERT, as you said, has a significant direct impact on the schools that are under the remit of the central government, but it's, it's perhaps, I think you'd agree, it's more important role is, is, is in serving as a benchmark uh, for, or, or a reference mm. point for curriculum developers uh, uh, in the various states of India. Um, but whether within the states themselves or at NCERT, um, the problem is when you're developing a curriculum for a, a society that's as diverse as India, um, or perhaps for any society, a one-size-fits-all uh, curriculum or a, a sort of overly didactic or prescriptive curriculum mm. perhaps is not appropriate. I mean, would you say that that's that, that sort of overly prescriptive or didactic approach was something that um, you were trying to challenge when you were at NCERT? I think you have uh, indicated the general direction of reforms that were my agenda. Uh, basically, uh, the council uh, wanted to create an enabling kind of document, create an environment through this uh, new curricular document that might motivate each state and even sub-state units to participate in their, with their own sense of goal about where we want to uh, take the system next. Uh, you are right about this question of prescriptive or didactic kind of impulse, which has always been there. And in fact, that is one of the key legacies of colonial rule in India that uh, you create um, uh, from mid 19th century onwards, you, you, you see uh, the task of the administration to, uh, to not only set standards, but to direct everyone to follow a certain kind of uh, text. Uh, the colonial administration saw in the prescription of textbooks uh, a great solution to the problem of maintaining uh, a system which had government schools as well as private schools and where society uh, was so uh, 
hierarchically organized that uh, uh, opportunities for different castes and classes uh, were very, very different. So the prescribed textbook had become in colonial India a sort of a magic wand uh, that everybody understood as the basis of an examination at different points in the school system, uh, an examination that will convey a message of fair competition, even though everybody knew that the competition can never be fair in a society where there's so much poverty and so much inequality. But yet the prescribed textbook serving as a basis for questions to be set for public examinations uh, in grade 8, grade 10, and now, of course, grade 12, uh, that it became, you can say, the, uh, the very basis uh, for millions of uh, teachers to, uh, to organize their classroom life around. Um, and I think that's where the curricular reforms uh, were most um, uh, focused. Can we create a greater autonomy, uh, intellectual autonomy for teachers to interpret different aspects of knowledge in science and social sciences, math and so on, so that they, they can relate to children rather than just teach the prescribed textbook. Uh, because this part of the colonial legacy has not really been affected much uh, by more than seven decades of it. You know, independent independence uh, uh, in India, uh, administrative reforms and various other reforms. So this tie-up between the textbook and the exam, this you can say was the focus of the curricular reforms that NCRT was attempting to bring about uh, in 2005. In very yes, in general terms, that that was what you saw as your agenda then to to sort of challenge the colonial model of. Uh, Curriculum, textbook-based, textbook-based teaching, highly didactic, highly top-down. Yes, um, uh, an examination-oriented. Yeah, mm. yeah. So the idea of curriculum basically as an instrument of the state for control, for civilization, and, and for, encouraging cramming. Yeah, closure of the mind. Yeah, unthinking. Then for ranking the population That's in right, terms yes. of their, uh, yeah. the, the extent to which they have assimilated this very sort of normative model mm. of civilization. So in, in general terms, that, that was your agenda. But of course, you came into that role in 2005 after what I think many saw as the shock mm. election victory of the Congress. Uh, a pleasant shock for many, I think, <laughs> of the, the election victory of the Congress <clears throat> in 2004, which um, ousted the first uh, BJP-led regime, which had used that colonial sort of curricular model that you're describing as a vehicle for its own uh, vision of um, Indian identity. Uh, um, its own sort of ideas of civilization mm. uh, and what that meant here in India. So um, you were coming into that role at NCERT at a very sort of politically fraught mm. time. Um, yes. Although in some ways, perhaps we'll get onto this later. The present day is just as fraught, if not more so. But can you describe what the sort of climate was then? and what challenge, what specific challenges yes. that posed for you? Uh, yes. In fact, I would say the current climate is less fraught oh. and less tense than what it was in 2004 when I received my appointment orders. Uh, yes, the Congress had led uh, that government under the UPA, the United Progressive Alliance, and it's, it was very concerned with uh, education and the, um, uh, yes, there was a, you might say, a tussle uh, between ideas of India, even at that stage. Um, my role was partly defined by my appointing authorities, but as far as I'm concerned, I thought I must define my own role uh, in terms of uh, the uh, profession of teaching. 
and my own professional training in the area of curriculum and pedagogy. Um, for many, many years uh, since I started teaching in, in the 70s, I had been concerned about uh, the absence of uh, the learner, the child or the student in um, the manner in which teaching occurs in India. Uh, it's uh, highly, as, as we said earlier, textbook driven and is highly teacher centric. And it's also highly examination centric. The term child centered had entered Indian policy discourse since sometime in the 1980s. But really no headway had been made to make it a meaningful term. Uh, you could say child centered really meant simply uh, rhetoric. It was a kind of a slogan. So I set my eyes on the making, making new curricular policies that might promote child-centeredness in a more substantial sense uh, in, at every, in every aspect of the way in which schooling is organized, giving greater space to children to think, to question, to explore, to discover, to move the system away from uh, cramming, uh, from preparing for examination and for failing a very vast number of children. I mean, India's failure rates at grade 10 are staggering, uh, have always been very, very high. Even in colonial times, they were extremely high. But even today, in most states, uh, uh, you know, any, anything between uh, 40 to 60 percent of children are declared fail in grade 10. After having invested for 10 years in education, uh, they get out of the system. And the same is true of grade 12 examinations, even though grade 10 has already eliminated so many. And this is on top of the number of children who are eliminated from the system after grade 8. Uh, most of the states have a kind of a board exam, a public exam, even at grade 8 level, uh, which fails a great number of children, and you can imagine who they will be. They will be children of the poor, um, children of the lower castes, and so on and so forth, and girls. Which, which speaks to a system, really, whose who's main sort of objective is not to instill a love of learning or to mm. um, uh, uh, nurture the children mm. under its care, but to legitimate uh, a sort of starkly um, unequal distribution of opportunities. You have put it absolutely right. And that really was the key concern when uh, a, a big group of people assembled in 2005 to decide what direction curricular reform should go. The National Curriculum Framework 2005, you can say, continues to be known for this change of direction uh, so that there is greater space for um, children to develop uh, interest in learning, see schools as places where they would like to go rather than where they would be compelled to go. We were very lucky to have the late Professor Yashpal in one of India's most celebrated scientists to lead that effort for NCRT because he had done some remarkable work with children on television for many years before he came into this role of uh, chairing the steering committee of the National Curriculum Framework 2005 exercise. And as he puts it in his famous forward to that document, that what we want to create in every child uh, is an addiction for learning <laughs> uh, so that they see uh, any, any subject, any topic, any question as a means to enter into a lifelong kind of uh, trajectory of finding interesting things, discovering them, their own interests and the world around them. And this is the role that ultimately the NCRT uh, gave itself to promote this perspective through these wide ranging discussions that it could hold across the country uh, for that year, whole year and the next actually. And then 
get everybody's consensus around a document which will show the way how even textbooks can be uh, thought-provoking, can be, uh, can be uh, kinds of uh, means of pedagogic work in classroom uh, that involves um, thinking for yourself, deciding for yourself what might be true, what might not be so true, what is worth um, exploring further or in language to, uh, to look at language as a means to think through rather than merely as a means to, you know, to gain competence in how to impress others with pronunciation or whatever. <laughs> in sciences, to explore nature, environment, etc. Around, around you, where you are located in whatever terrain and to see the world in terms of the problems that can be understood in your own garden or in your own lab. So environment-related concerns were very centrally look, you know, identified in the context of this natural sciences. And then we had mathematics, which has always been such a source of uh, great fear. But that's, in, that's where a vast proportion of children fail in early grades. And uh, many studies have established how girls are the greatest victims of the stereotype that they are not fit for mathematical learning. So in mathematics, that was the huge challenge, how to make mathematics uh, a, a means rather than an end uh, for cracking, um, you know, entrance exams and for doing this and that to improve your chances of leaving everybody else behind. And of course, in the social sciences, we had vast number of challenges, particularly in history, but also in political science, in economics, and so on. So the overall situation was such that we felt that we could intervene in every different sphere of curriculum with this agenda of making uh, teaching more child-centric. Yes, well, you mentioned uh, social sciences and history, and of course, you yourself are a historian, and um, before you went to NCERT, you'd written that book, Prejudice and Pride, uh, looking at the, the teaching of the mm. histories of, of, of the freedom struggle in Pakistan and, and in India. Um, can you say a little bit more about how the sort of vision that you've um, articulated, that you've described, how that um, uh, related to the reform mm. of the history curriculum in particular? Well, we are now entering the most complex terrain of how historians present. I'm myself not a professional historian, but rather kind of somebody who uh, observes how history is written. And that's what I did in that book, Prejudice and Pride, uh, to understand how history is presented. Now, in that study, as well as some earlier work I had done on history textbooks, I had come to the conclusion that the main problem has to do with... Uh, how this historian who writes for children sees his or her role. And older textbooks all along, even the best ones, uh, present history as something that the historian knows. And when the historian writes for children, most historians in the older uh, style of writing don't tell children how do you know what you know. History is a bit of a, a sort of a personally acquired knowledge when it comes across in old style textbooks. Now in sciences the absolute contrast can be seen in good textbooks. Uh, scientists who work on uh, problems of teaching or science scholars who agree to write for children they like to give children the opportunity to understand how this conclusion was reached in the history of science or how do we know today, for example, uh, how salt tastes or what it does to uh, X number of other chemicals, etc. The scientist wants children to gain at least a taste of the experience of a scientist, but the historian doesn't. The historian believes that he or she has a narrative which is based on facts, etc. And now it's the job of the historian to tell how, how things happened in the past without telling the children, uh, how do you know that this is what happened in the past? 
So the past is presented as a uh, ready-made uh, package of a, of a certain kind of narrative. And the basis of that narrative was never shared. And this is where we thought is our opportunity for reforming history teaching uh, to bring in the question of evidence, archaeological evidence, documentary evidence, plus debates on the evidence. What counts as adequate and relevant evidence for coming to a conclusion about something that happened maybe only 10 years ago, let alone something that happened 2000 years ago. The notion of evidence, we thought, is the heart of uh, improved or progressive teaching of history and for arousing interest in history. Because, you know, the traditional image of the history um, syllabus is uh, a bundle of dates and names, and especially kings uh, who, who lost in which war, in which year and where. Uh, that's what you memorize. That's how children, uh, probably in many countries, but certainly in India, think of history. Whereas our goal in order to make every aspect of curriculum child-centered was to uh, make children wonder, uh, is this what happened in 1857? How do we know that this is what happened in 1637? Or how people lived in uh, the Buddha's times? What did they wear? What did they eat? Uh, making the child wonder and then looking at whatever evidence, limited or more, exists for different periods. And look at that evidence not just as, as ready-made uh, recipe of, you know, to take, to, to take you know, decisions on, but rather to see evidence itself as a matter of interpretation. Uh, from what perspective can this evidence be seen now after so, so much time has passed? How does perspective matter in deciding what does this evidence mean for putting together a string of episodes for understanding a certain period of history, uh, which may span from, say, 50 years to 500 years or whatever. So involving the child in uh, historiography, the child's historiography, uh, really was the goal of the new history curriculum and new history textbooks based on that curriculum, the design of these books, the kind of questions they would ask. And the, the nice thing about this whole attempt was that it tried to build bridges between history, economics, geography, political science. Uh, across the social sciences, we thought we will create bridges so that uh, social sciences become live with uh, young people's um, motivation to make sense. How does geography affect, influence history? How does economy of different parts of a geography uh, influence what happens historically in those parts? Uh, how does, you know, similarly, uh, how, how, how do we use the term politics, exercise of power, bringing people together, mobilizing them, for what? in different kinds of uh, regimes in uh, an old country like India. So all of these attempts were following the line that the chairperson of the entire effort, Professor Yashpal, put it as uh, uh, linking, as creating coupling devices for these very diverse disciplines, which in the uh, sort of colonial kind of system were all individual subjects. And people saw in teaching their role as teaching their own subject without worrying about how the child is learning different subjects on a single day. Uh, from morning to evening, the child has six to eight classes in which different subjects are taught by people who don't talk to each other. Or uh, with the help of textbooks, whose writers, whose composers have not interacted with the other subject writers and so on. So all of that really was the challenge. Yes, so um, as you say, I mean, you were trying to develop a, an approach to teaching history, um, but also other subjects within the school curriculum that invites children to consider, you know, what history is as a form of knowledge, and that um, uh, 
invites them to consider how you know how we know what we know yes. uh, about history, and um, you know what are the tools that we have to uh, investigate or to understand the past. Um, at the same time, by uh, and you use the term colonial to describe the sort of paradigm that you were trying to shift. Uh, and, um, of course, colonial is a very loaded term, uh, and it refers to uh, a sort of relationship between the state and the citizen, or um, the authorities and the subjects, uh, where, you know, well, which, which is an authoritarian one. Mm. So, pedagogically, uh, you're trying to move away from a situation where the child or the student is a sort of passive disciple receiving an authoritative account of history or of whatever uh, uh, form of knowledge um, uh, concerns us towards a model where the child is active, where the child has agency. Um, and isn't that to some extent associated with an idea of citizenship yes. that is liberal democratic, um, essentially, that's preparing children for lives as active, engaged, informed um, citizens? I would say more than history, the subject which presented this problem was the subject called civics since colonial times. The word civics itself carries uh, a certain legacy of how the state perceived the citizen. Uh, the word civics suggests that the state perceived the citizen as an object of reform, uh, both kind of a uh, civilizational reform, character reform that was very bluntly articulated in colonial times, but continued after independence. In fact, civics was seen as the great socializing mission of the state, uh, making the citizen understand how many good things the government was trying to do, and so on. So more than history, the civics question presented uh, an issue to be handled, and very significant reform uh, was made by NCRT when the grade six to uh, eight uh, textbooks of the subject called civics were overhauled and the name of the subject itself was changed. If you want to buy these textbooks in a bookshop, you will have to ask for social and political life. That's the title of this field, which earlier was covered by civics. Now, the field itself changed. We redefined this subject by saying, if we if if we want to uh, encourage the citizen to think, uh, to be to not just receive messages of the state, uh, but to shape the state and the ethos in which the state will function, because after all, it's the people's state in a democracy. Uh, then, really, the citizen has to participate. Uh, in, in everything, every aspect of life, uh, from garbage collection to how water is used to uh, what to, to name it, and, and question the state and its, uh, its decisions, its policies made in the past uh, or may, being made at present uh, from a citizen's perspective. Now, this was, I think, the most exciting journey of creating child-centered material. Uh, the grade six to eight uh, textbooks for social and political life. And the uh, number of people who were involved in shaping those textbooks, I think, uh, have to be kind of given great sense of gratitude of society, system, and should be congratulated for this wonderful job they did. Parallel to it, history also emerged as a wonderful locus of uh, melting down the old frozen social science uh, of history, where a certain perspective was used to uh, create a more progressive narrative of India's past, 
but which had led to this enormous controversy uh, for nearly 40 years it had lasted uh, between rival notions of what is India um, and its identity. The, the secular... Versus, uh, versus the religious, issue. yeah, cultural nationalism, you call it. Uh, and what is secularism? Yes, those older textbooks of the NCRT, which had started to come from late 60s onwards, were also excellent textbooks. We knew that they are written by uh, very eminent historians uh, with great concern for the nation and for uh, schools and children. Nevertheless, they were not the kind of textbooks that would encourage children to think uh, about why this evidence as opposed to that evidence should be given greater weightage. And that's exactly where the political controversy had grown and grown and grown, leading to the point where uh, the controversy had almost engulfed NCRT and it created an, a stereotype of NCRT, as if all that NCRT does is, is history. Uh, rather than wide-ranging, uh, you know, activities of curriculum, curricular and pedagogic reform. So we were able to kind of deal with that with the help of, I would say, hundreds of teachers of history and eminent historians uh, to create new material, new syllabus of history, where uh, instead of giving a single narrative around essentially uh, transition from ancient to modern times, we could make uh, children realize that everything has history. There is a there is history in, in, in clothing, there's history in food, there is history in relations of men and women, there is history in farming, uh, and that history can't be straight jacketed into a succession war between uh, kings and queens and so on, between regimes. Uh, which is where the problem really lay uh, of seeing the past in very narrowly defined terms of uh, successions. Uh, the new material opened up the whole field, started off in grade six by introducing how archaeologists make sense of what they find below the surface of the earth. How do they interpret what they find? And uh, why is it more difficult to come to uh, conclusions for ancient uh, artifacts found in archaeological investigations than in later investigations. Why the problem of amount of evidence itself translates into debates about what might have happened. So we introduce children at every stage from grade 6 to 12 to debates among historians, asking teachers and um, children to see how a certain narrative is marshaled, uh, what evidence does it use, and can it lend itself to multiple interpretations. And this way, the old controversy got diffused. And over the years, NCRT was able to convince all sides in the ideological political spectrum in India that uh, we were being fair, we were being open, we were being... Um, uh, progressive in the way in which education must open minds rather than spread the word of one kind or another. So instead of preaching, let there be teaching and teaching as a as a means to encourage rather than to close. Yes, that's a nice way of putting it. Teaching, not preaching. Um, <laughs> yes. But and, and you say that, that that to some extent you were able to convince all sides that that this approach was. Uh, at least acceptable. Um, yes, you know, in the beginning of this interview, you had asked me about NCRT's role. It was primarily with schools that are uh, affiliated with the central board. It's a matter of great satisfaction for my professional career that by the time I was finishing my term at NCRT, as many as... Uh, 35% of India's states of different political uh, orientation had decided to use our textbooks rather than their own. Of course, so over a third. Yes, over a third. And in the remaining uh, two thirds, 
several states had adapted number of sections of our textbooks. Uh, and across the country, there was this feeling that what NCRT has done is something new, something worth looking at. And so state after state uh, agreed to participate in the processes that NCRT initiated through satellite technology to come on board for understanding what we had done. Literally thousands of experts of states and teachers participated in these uh, satellite TV discussions to grasp what the new textbooks were all about rather than be prejudiced towards them from one perspective or another. And yes, because rolling out this new approach through the textbooks, of course, on its own is not enough. Is you not enough. See. We had to promote the idea, explain why are they new. They're not just new. They differently define the subject as, as an area of knowledge. That's what the late Professor Yashwal was very keen to make sure happens, that people understand that these are not just new textbooks, but new kind of books. And that they come along with a, a bigger perspective about what is worth learning, how to teach that, what is the goal of learning. And, and we were able to do that because of this EduSat, the educational satellite, uh, which was made available to NCRT for uh, dozens of meetings organized in different parts of the country to which teachers could be called to ask questions directly from academic experts uh, who were involved in this gigantic curricular reform exercise. So by the time you stepped down from NCERT, which I believe was in 2011? Uh, 10. 2010. Yeah. Uh, you could already see that these reforms were being taken up yes. to quite a large extent across India in various states. Um, that was 2010. Um, over the subsequent um, what decade, mm. uh, and given that since 2014, once again, the BJP has returned to power, um, I mean, many might have expected that some of the reforms that you pursued under the previous Congress administration, that the BJP administration that we have now might have pushed back against those reforms mm. or sought to undermine them. To what extent do you think that's happened? Or to what extent do you think that what you felt you'd managed to achieve by the end of your tenure has survived subsequent vicissitudes? It has not only survived, it has sustained with splendid stability. And that is something that is, you can say, as a very pleasant, uh, call it shock, or a pleasant realization that what was achieved was perceived ultimately as a professional achievement and not simply some kind of uh, ideological uh, uh, attainment. Uh, yes, a lot of people expected that after the change of regime uh, from 2014 onwards, the curricular reforms of NCRT will just be set aside. It didn't happen. Uh, in fact, a, a very major committee was appointed uh, to look at the new history to see uh, whether it was um, full of various problems. This committee, in fact, saw almost nothing objectionable in the new material. Yes, there were uh, all kinds of voices. I mean, India is a noisy democracy and therefore a lot of people uh, demanded that uh, you know, new material should be brought in and so on and so forth. Well, it still hasn't happened. Uh, now, it's, we are in 2023. Uh, all that has happened is in some cases, certain box items have been inserted here and there. But the essential structure has sustained of in all subjects. And NCRT is uh, kind of relieved of the responsibility of uh, redesigning these textbooks, um, it's reprinting them year after year. And so are the states that had taken copyright from NCRT. Now a new national curriculum framework exercise has been initiated last year. And uh, exactly where it defines the goal we will wait to see in uh, 24 when, or 25 when it completes this exercise. Uh, but as for 
the um, fact that um, the 2005 reforms uh, have not gone away, I think that's a testimony to the people who worked to make those reforms a success. I mean, Professor Yashpal is no more, but had he been around, I think he would have been quite proud of the fact that the NCRT's work has sustained for now, uh, you know, almost two decades. And children who entered grade one in 2005 are now of voting age. Well, it's interesting you should you should raise that. Yes, they're now a voting age, and of course we we face another election in India next yes. year. So we'll see how the the products of the NCERT sort of new curriculum cast their votes. Um, yes, but I think I must warn you that votes are cast in India not just for the federal government; they are also cast for provincial governments, and there is enormous political diversity across these twenty nine states in India. If you look at the map even today and look at the elections of the last uh, two, you know, two elections, I mean, election of the last decade, you will notice that people are voting differently. Uh, people are voting in unpredictable ways. And therefore, it's not just a 24 election to the parliament, but also the other elections, which are, and, and elections are really one manifestation of how young people think. We cannot reduce democratic uh, life and choices to how a vote is cast, even though, of course, a vote is very decisive in many ways. But I won't reduce it to that. I think how municipalities are functioning. I mean, social political life textbooks of grade six to eight, they talk about village councils as the locus of democracy. Then they talk about municipalities in urban locations as the locus, kinds of decisions made. And they are very important issues, especially in the current context of climate change. Mm. Uh, so I wouldn't reduce the impact measurement of our efforts to how votes are cast for this or that party in the parliament. No, no, sure. But on a much wider and more complex spectrum, which are, on which I think a number of people can get their PhDs. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, uh, as you say, evaluating the effects yes. of any sort of curriculum reform is, is always an extremely fraught exercise. And very challenging exercise. Um, yes. But do you think that, if you like, the cohort of um, 2005 curriculum reform alumni, uh, yes. young people <laughs> uh, in, in India, uh, I mean... One gets the impression in India today and, and uh, from a media which admittedly is, is um, not as free perhaps as it used to be and um, is, is to some extent intimidated by the current regime. But one gets the impression of a, a, a rising nationalism, of growing intolerance uh, in society. Um, uh, in some respects at least um, uh, maybe that impression is mistaken <laughs> uh, but do you think that um, in the current sort of climate in India uh, educators have sufficient or do, do you think that they have significant scope for conducting the sort of open-ended critical discussion of history, for example, that you were seeking to promote when you were at NCERT? Let me say that history has not stopped since we reformed the curriculum. A range of things are happening and they cannot be reduced to simply political change. Look at the rise and dominance today of digital technology which is not necessarily under state control, even in its crudest form, it's under corporate control. And what young people are receiving today through their various apps, uh, various softwares that are directly oriented to teaching in classes or assessment strategies, they have dispersed the field so much that no amount of control on television or newspaper media can really reflect how, uh, how curricular kinds of 
uh, goals uh, are made far more difficult to achieve because of the dominance of digital um, uh, masters of digital technology, the owners of digital technology today, which are influencing directly what goes on in the classrooms. You can't, you can't see it in terms of purely uh, state versus citizens perspective. The market, the pedagogy market is shaping uh, minds, emotions, uh, responses in ways that educational theorists haven't even begun to realize how to make sense of. The pedagogy market is the most chaotic market, more chaotic than uh, the market of weapons, for example, or liquor. The pedagogy market, which is using the child as its primary consumer, I think is a far bigger threat to sanity, to what you want to call, you know, responsible, critical thinking, uh, than any ideological propaganda can be uh, in politics. Uh, not that I want to uh, trivialize political issues. No, they are extremely important. But you call, you call the children of this period the alumni of the curricular reforms of NCRT. As alumni, I think they have been subjected to some very hard currents of history. Digital technologies rise is one. Then you had this, this three-year-long COVID period, which uh, has gone very badly for young people in all, I suppose, all uh, educational systems, but particularly in India. Uh, it has uh, its implications we can't even understand, although we are kind of seeing the decline of active COVID cases. But the how it has uh, ravaged the education system, we don't fully understand. So as we speak about curricular reforms initiated uh, nearly, you know, almost say 17, 18 years ago, we must take into account a very complex uh, histories of this period in, in technological terms, yes, in political terms, in economic terms, who had expected that the gig economy of casualized work and uh, almost a decimation of career-oriented uh, jobs or um, competence-oriented uh, you know, uh, work experiences uh, will just be a thing of the past. Uh, and education very directly addresses these questions as to what kind of work will bring you some sense of fulfillment. In fact, yeah. the NCRT's curricular reforms also were uh, referring to that work environment in which uh, children uh, will function as citizens when they grow up. Our senior level textbooks in various subjects actually were directly addressing those issues. And at that time, nobody could have predicted the extent to which this new uh, economy will take over. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I rather flippantly referred to sort of young people as, yes. as the sort of alumni of the... No, it's a nice uh, term. I love <laughs> I greatly enjoy it. Well, well... Yeah, and I yeah, still but, have some faith in them. But, but <laughs> in, in a way, that, 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 that way of putting it sort of speaks to a kind of vanity that we yes. in the education field Absolutely. perhaps have about... Well, you know, when we think about the impact of formal education. What we did, yes. Um, because as you say, uh, you know, there are all these influences to which young people are exposed. And our vanity can also make us very complacent. Yeah. Curricular reforms have to go on in every classroom, in the mind of every teacher who is starting to teach, everybody who is getting too old to teach. But they also have to connect... Yes. Meaningfully to what's happening outside the classroom, to the other Absolutely, influences yes. to which young people are exposed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might be more ac accurate to talk about young people in India or elsewhere today as alumni of Facebook, Google, and um, Twitter. You could put it better, yes. Not to mention TikTok. Uh, well, which is mentioned. the current uh, favorite of so many young Well, TikTok's people. banned in India, isn't it? So. No, no, no. When, is it banned? No, I think it's banned in, in the US currently. Lots of places are talking. Lots of places, yeah. But we'll have are, to check this. So but listen, there are rivals. Check. I think it's there are rivals <laughs> to TikTok. I think including yes. Indian rivals. Yes, 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 doubtless. Um, um, 
Perhaps we can talk about some uh, about another sort of major uh, development in education that goes back actually to the end of your time at NCERT mm. to, to to that Congress administration, which is the um, the legislation for the right to education mm. of 2010, um, which was meant to sort of cement or, or um, guarantee the achievement of universal access to at least basic schooling yes. across India. Um, I mean, how has that affected the educational landscape um, over the subsequent decade? I mean, we've talked about how we, you think that, that the reforms, that the curriculum reforms that you were responsible have, have affected the landscape, but how has that other major piece mm. of educational reform legislation uh, affected the landscape of education in India? Well, I'm very glad that you uh, uh, brought in that question because NCRT itself was very directly involved in the shaping of the law, uh, which uh, makes uh, eight years of school education a fundamental right of every child. Uh, it was promulgated in 2010. And now we are uh, 13 years uh, from that moment. Uh, there is no question that when the law was promulgated, it was creating a, a new chapter in India's social history, um, both in terms of funding of elementary education and in terms of uh, orientation mechanisms for such a diverse society. 2010 was a, quite a significant year. Um, central funds were available on a very large scale, even for the poorest states. And the states that were already ahead in the direction of this universal uh, right to schooling uh, were able to put in a lot of funds themselves for making this new law a social reality. Now, 13 years later, as we sit today, uh, we must register that the picture or what you call the landscape presents uh, a very mixed picture, you can say. Um, why it is mixed is very difficult to assess because uh, financial allocations have changed greatly between center and states. Uh, the 14th Finance Commission uh, distributed money on very different basis and this is not the right moment to discuss that. But uh, in several states, the uh, Right to Education Act seems to have lost momentum. Uh, whereas in certain states, especially the southern states, it has maintained momentum, has gained momentum. And that's a typical story. Uh, yeah. Well, for decades, that's for been decades, the case. For a, in fact, for centuries, you can say, for almost one century. Yes. Kerala has been far closer to the goal of putting every child at school uh, than UP or you know, uh, and the northern states in general. And that inequality uh, has not been uh, uh, addressed uh, by this law. In fact, while the law was being drafted, it was understood that the law by itself will not solve everything. The law needs a great deal of uh, social ethos building, needs a lot of local level initiative building in order to make it uh, a success. Now in Tamil Nadu, in Kerala, parts of Telangana, parts of Maharashtra, certainly very, very solid progress was achieved. Um, in Northern India also, I think Bengal did better than it was doing earlier in this period. And you could say similar things about states like Orissa and even Rajasthan, uh, could, you could say, uh, is, has done better. But then many other things came in the way of the implementation of this law. Privatization being one very big question. Because the law, while it does enunciate the right and it argues for uh, curricular changes, examination policy related changes, 
in order to retain children so that they are not failed and eliminated in these first eight years of schooling. Uh, while it does all that, its own strength to cut across this bridge between government and private schools, its own strength has proved to be a bit weak, low, you can say. Um, private schools of all kinds, from low budget, low fee schools to the high end schools now um, are, are a dominant player in school education in India. And in certain states, uh, private schools of very poor quality actually have multiplied greatly in this period. And due to other social, linguistic and various other kinds of, you can say, uh, reasons, uh, parents uh, have been shifting their children from government to private schools. As a result of that, right to education related uh, procedures, provisions, etc. Uh, have been difficult to implement in the private system, even though I mean, ideally they should work there as well. So what I'm trying to say is that it's not a simple history. Yes, a new social history has begun. Legal institutions uh, are much more involved now in uh, shaping the future of education. Courses have been introduced in training of <clears throat> uh, lawyers and even the judiciary so that they understand this law and its implications. Uh, but none of that is sufficient. Uh, it's not easy to implement a law that pertains to children. I mean, look at the Child Marriage Act. Uh, it was promulgated during uh, the British time, 1929. To this day, child marriage remains a problem. I mean, maybe not as significant as it was then. Uh, so social policy laws, I'm saying, have a difficult uh, forward movement. I somehow expected that the child rights law in education will move forward with greater speed. That hasn't happened. Not that I'm you know, disappointed with its performance. I think in some parts it's been quite good. But somehow one expected that this new chapter of social history will will be faster than it has proved. I'm sure COVID has a lot to do with that, but plus financial uh, policy-related changes have a lot to do with its very slow progress. And in some cases, actually, regression has occurred in this period, it seems. At, at the moment, we don't have enough statistics to, uh, or, or enough uh, survey-based picture of social reality to say exactly where things are in which part of India. Uh, including areas where there is enormous social conflict or, or, and, and other kinds of problems. But uh, it's still a very major law and 13 years is just not enough of a time passage to um, talk in any objective terms about uh, its ability to shape um, children's life and especially the question of distribution of opportunities. In any case, it just covers eight years <laughs> and opportunities in education, as you know, are shaped by much longer time. <coughs> the law doesn't cover secondary stage, senior secondary stage, so on and so forth. But still, it's a very major thing. If all boys and girls can be retained for eight years, my God, it looks like a very radical thing to say for an old society like India, where there's so much social uh, discrimination, disparity yes. and so on. Yes, I mean, uh, but uh, I mean, as you've you've touched on, as you've suggested, I mean, it, 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 it um, understanding all the difficulties attached to realizing this mm. right to education takes us into a whole new area of mm. state provision or the the capa state capacity, if you like, yes. um, and the problems with that uh, specifically as regards the the state system of schooling in India. Um, and the balance between state and private provision. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, I mean, many of the private schools to which an increasing proportion of people have been sending their children uh, offer a, a rather fragile mm. um, uh, form of provision, as we saw during COVID, when many of these private schools went out of business mm. rather quickly. Um, leaving millions of children with 
really no access to to education. Um, but uh, that's probably a separate discussion. Yes. Um, and yes, and the whole business of the impact of the the two years of school closures that India suffered mm. during COVID. But. Um, uh, that takes us beyond the issue of curriculum, which is our main concern in this yeah. conversation. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank and, you. And can I just say that there will be um, uh, a short reading list on the website for those who are interested in reading more about the issues that we've discussed today. Sure. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.